0: Hello, and welcome to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. I am Drew Cunningham. I'm one of the pastors here at Santa Cruz Baptist.
1: And I'm Tyler Hurst. I'm one of the other pastors here.
0: We are starting a new podcast here um, to kind of further what we're trying to do on Sunday mornings in the sermon. Uh, on any given week, uh, Tyler and I, as we prepare to preach, have a lot of material that doesn't always end up in the sermon, but we find fascinating, or we have people that ask questions about different things that didn't make it into the sermon. And so, we wanted to start something that would hopefully be beneficial to the discipleship of our church, um, and hopefully will be helpful to you as the listener. And so, this week for our very first podcast, uh, Tyler preached through Mark chapter six, verse thirty through forty-four. And it's the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's an amazing, amazing story. And so we're just going to kind of walk through a handful of things over the next several minutes um, that hopefully will be helpful uh, as you grow more in the likeness of Christ. So, Tyler, uh, let's start here. Uh, There was a lot of information uh, in this sermon, it was packed full of gold. And so, what is the, the one thing that you hope people walked away with from this sermon and this text this week?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the primary point that I was trying to drive home is that Jesus satisfies. In fact, that he's the only thing that can truly satisfy us, uh, that we, we experience uh, sort of an, an angst or sort of a, an emptiness with the different things of this world. And we can only really find satisfaction, even in those things, when we first found satisfaction in Christ for who He is.
0: That's awesome. So last night at Missional Community, uh, we were discussing this text together, and something you mentioned there, um, you mentioned uh, a John Piper quote that you and I know very well, most people know very well, um, but John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so um, out of what you just said, uh, what does that look like to be most satisfied in God? And what what's Piper getting at there that you see in the text you preach this week?
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's not a super easy question to answer, but uh, I think the short answer is, looking for the one who is most satisfied in God is essentially looking at Jesus uh, and seeing what it looks like to, to not feel the need to dive deeply into the pleasures of this world necessarily because you're finding satisfaction in God, uh, because uh, your joy, your contentment come from what he has for you. Then everything else in this world kind of plugs into that because all of the things which we experience, the things which we normally try and seek our satisfaction in, be it uh, like I, I quoted in the sermon, John Mayer, uh, Mick Jagger, and Tom Brady, and they were trying to seek their satisfaction in fame, fortune, sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, success, ambition, uh, all those sorts of things. And we can even say, uh, you know, take out the drugs, but we could say a lot of that is actually really good. Music is a good thing. Athleticism and ambition is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Uh, financial stability is a good thing. But those things, we try and find our satisfaction in them. And if they become the primary thing, we, never, we can never be satisfied. There's also a famous uh, William Randolph Hertz quote where he was asked how much money would be enough. Uh, And he was, at the time, the richest man in America, and he said, one more dollar. And the idea was he always needed to make more. He could never be fully satisfied in money. Um, I think we see what what does satisfaction in God look like? It looks like contentment because you first go to God before any of these other things become the way in which you define yourself or find your meaning.
0: Yeah. Um, So I guess a follow-up question to that. Uh, in James, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So that concept that um, these things that we have are good gifts that come down from God, how how does that reconcile with finding um, satisfaction and or being most satisfied in, in Christ, uh, but also... Uh, acknowledging good gifts from God. How do those two things go together?
1: Yeah. Um, I think a, a big part of that just comes from a disposition of gratitude, uh, understanding that the, the things we have in our lives, God put there, they're not there by accident. Um, they're not even there by like punishment, which a lot of people might think of, uh, say they sinned or messed up or something like that. And then, uh, there are ramifications of that. And even still, you can be thankful for the things which God puts in your life, uh, even in terms of the natural consequences of your sin. But to take, to take a fairly mundane example that a lot of people could probably um, uh, understand and relate to would be family. So it can be so easy on a day-by-day basis to get uh, frustrated with our spouse or with our children or something like that. But one of the things I tried to point out in my sermon is that those things which we often get frustrated with when we when we ask, hey, does anybody have prayer for something? The things that come out in terms of, oh, I'm stressed in my job or I'm stressed about my family or I'm frustrated with this, those things were at one point usually a gift that God gave us uh, that we, well, our disposition of gratitude towards God for that good thing has changed and now we only see the negative side of it. Uh, so kids can be super frustrating, but... If you talk to a couple struggling with infertility, you find out how grateful you should be, how much gratitude you should have because you have children. Mm-hmm.
0: That's good. So you used the word earlier, contentment, and uh, That reminds me of Philippians 4 where Paul says, I've learned in all things, whether in plenty or in want, to be content and that's another book we were talking about last night, is uh, Jeremiah Burroughs' The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Uh, I think that's a good exposition of of not only Philippians 4, but kind of what you're getting at, that uh, when, when our ultimate satisfaction is in Christ, um, one, yes, He is most glorified, uh, but also we uh, can enjoy God's good gifts, but also hold them loosely. And I think that's um, really, what what Philippians 4 and um,
1: you are, are getting
0: at that?
1: I, I think that that Philippians four idea too is really interesting because it hits on both sides of it. Mm-hmm. We can be discontent because we feel like we don't have enough, but we can be discontent because we're drowning in stuff. Bingo. Uh, and Paul is sitting there saying like, "No, I've I've experienced much, and I've been able to be content uh, in the good gifts of God when he when he gives ab- abundantly of the good gifts that make up this world." He says, I've I've also sat in prison and learned to be contentment, learned to be content just sitting in a dark basement somewhere in the Roman Empire.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So to shift gears a little bit, um, your three main points in the sermon were uh, that Jesus is is all satisfying as the good shepherd who feeds the sheep. Um, Point two was Jesus is all satisfying as the master of ceremonies. And then point three was Jesus is all satisfying as the manna from heaven. Uh, amazing points from, Matthew, or from Mark 6. But there's always things, it, like I said earlier, in, in any given week that end up on the cutting room floor that don't make it into the sermon. Uh, what are some things for, from this sermon um, that particularly you, you found interesting but didn't get to include in the sermon?
1: Yeah, uh, there, there was a lot left on the cutting room floor for this one. Uh, a, a lot of it had to do with the image of shepherd. I came into your office halfway through the week and was thinking, like, wow, this sermon is way too long, I've got to cut it down. Uh, should I pick just one of these images, shepherd?" Shepard? Uh, the master of ceremonies, or uh, the bread from heaven. So just pick one, and focus. On yeah,
0: that. your notes said that it was in the ninety-five minute range yeah. midweek, yeah. so. Um,
1: and if I did, if I had to pick just one, I would have focused because it's so clear in the passage on that concept of shepherd. And this is just all over Scripture. I mean, you find it in Psalm ninety-five, uh, Isaiah sixty-three, Jeremiah thirty-one, Isaiah forty, uh, and it's it's a huge theme in Psalm twenty-three. Uh and so you get you get Psalm 23, just the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And I think much of that is resonating with the same concept pl- that Mark is playing around with here. Uh, I tend to think, which is why I went here with my sermon, that he's he's drawing specifically on Ezekiel 34. But if you take into account this passage as well, you have the connection of green pastures in verse two to Jesus having the people sit on the green grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have in verse two, again, he leads them beside still waters and Jesus and the disciples have arrived at this area via boat. So they have taken uh, a boat there and it's apart from like the storm narrative. So they've gone there traveling fairly safely, fairly, um, Uh, relaxed, so still waters, uh, restores the soul. He's feeding these people, and he's first and foremost feeding them with his word about the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, And he's teaching them about, I mean, the kingdom of God uh, in the Gospel of Matthew is always coupled with in the kingdom's righteousness. So you Mm -hmm. pursue the kingdom and you pursue the righteousness and everything else uh, will be provided for you. It's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And so, I mean, just look at the first three verses. You get so much of this uh, at play here in Mark 6 as well.
0: Yeah, so I want to key in on uh, the green pastures part from Psalm 23. Uh, You talked a little bit about this in the sermon, about the significance of green grass in Mark chapter 6. Just for for our listeners who maybe heard the sermon or, or maybe didn't, why is green grass significant here? Even though it can seem like a throwaway line in the text, why, why, why is green grass important?
1: Yeah, we, we've already given a number of book recommendations from, feel free to read John Piper or Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, one more to throw at you is uh, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams, who's just a phenomenal scholar. Uh, And he does uh, this apologetic turn with the importance of of green grass. Uh, Just to summarize it, essentially he says when uh, secular non-Christian scholars look at this passage, they go Mark 6, uh, the same, the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke 9 or John 6 as well are classic examples of the exaggeration found in the scriptures. So that's one of the things they want to do. They want to remove the supernatural, the actual miraculous element of it. And so they say, this must be exaggeration. There must have been way less than 5,000 people and way more bread and fish, but something probably like this happened, but as an exaggeration. And, uh, And Peter Williams points out, well, if it's exaggerated, why would something as peripheral as the color of the grass be retained throughout the telling of the story while the main point of the story, the number of people, the sheer number of people being fed with the lack of food, why would that continue to increase while all these uh, like sideline details stay exactly the same? And one of the reasons why he points out that it stays the same is actually environmental science data tells us that we know, based off of when this event took place in relation to Passover, we know uh, the amount of precipitation And we could judge, would the grass have been green, would it have been yellow, would it have been well-nourished, would it have been dry and dead? Uh, And this would have followed three months of high precipitation for that area. So this is the time in which it wouldn't have been a muddy bog. It would have been green, well-fed by the rain. Uh, And so we have a pretty good environmental science data to say the green grass is actually an accurate description of this land.
0: Right. And they're uh, telling the story just how it happened. Uh, It wasn't that the disciples were um, in touch with all of this environmental data or would have known the precipitation. They just told the story as it is. And so that's that's why it ends up this this little peripheral detail uh, that ends up in the text itself. Uh, It's amazing. So um, we are constantly making book recommendations and. Uh, Tyler gave away one copy of, of Can We Trust the Gospels uh, in the sermon this weekend, but we, we want to offer another free copy. Uh, so, for the first person who emails us at office at Santa Cruz uh, asking for the book, we would love to get it to you. So, the first person who emails office at Santa Cruz Baptist Church or at Santa Cruz uh, will get a free copy of Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams.
1: I'll give another plug for that just from from the text. When, so when Dr. Williams talks about the same story, uh, he mentions um, that this is one of the only miracle accounts, aside from the resurrection, that is told in all four Gospels. And so one of the things that makes that interesting is you can set the four Gospel tellings next to each other. And it's not that any one of them are lacking, but when put next to each other, you get this really robust picture of why certain things are happening. So, for example... Uh, one gospel tells us that Jesus turned and just said, hey, no, you, disciples, feed this large crowd with what you have. Uh, another another gospel says specifically that he turned to Philip. And it doesn't explain why he turned to Philip, it just says he turned to Philip. Well, in actually a third gospel, it's explained that the background of Philip is he's from the area in which this miracle is is done. And so you have this kind of concept of when you take those three Gospels and set them next to each other, what you get is Jesus turned and said this to the guy who knew the local place to go get bread and fish. So when he's telling them to go feed, he's talking to the guy who would have known where to get the food.
0: Right. And so uh, one of his points in there, why he even explains these things, is to say um, it's possible that a later historian – went back and made up the, these stories. Um, but it's far more likely that they're told just as they happened and that these small details that get included that happen to line up with one another across the Gospels, um, it's, it's far more likely that they just recorded it as it happened and that these little details ended up in the, the four Gospels and they, they come together as one.
1: Yeah, William says in his introductory chapter uh the only reason to doubt their historicity of the Gospels is because of the miraculous things that they say. That when you understand the evidence that he looks at for his, I think there's eight chapters, when you understand that evidence, there's no reason to doubt the historical nature of them. The primary reason people doubt them is because the focus of the story is a guy raises from the dead.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. So I want to finish by just... Uh, asking uh, two final questions. Uh, one, you know, just w- we started with, you know, what do you hope people walked away with? But I want to drill down into that just a, a little bit further. Um, this is a, a miracle story. And so Jesus you know, takes five loaves and two fish and multiplies them and feeds more than 5,000 people. Um, that's a, a miraculous story. But why, why should I care about that? Um, you know, when I wake up in the morning and go to work or go to the grocery store, or if uh, I'm a mom um, who's trying to take care of, of their kids or a uh, dad who's going off to, to work, um, why, why should I care about that? Why does this miracle story have any impact on my life? And second question, along with that, for you specifically, how did this text impact you this week? How did it change how you're living this week.
1: Yeah, um, I think with all of the miracle stories, you can answer that first question similarly. Uh, I mean, you can even take the most miraculous, aside from the resurrection, the most miraculous of the miracle stories, which would be something like uh, just a few chapters prior to this text, Jesus raises somebody from the dead. He raises, Mm -hmm. in fact, it's a little girl. And one of the Gospels records it was, uh, the father, Jairus, it was his only daughter. Uh, so it's his only kid, it's his little girl. Um, I'm sure anybody, any dad with daughters can resonate to the brokenheartedness of having a young daughter, what that would mean to have a young daughter die. And Jesus raises her from the dead. And to be quite honest, uh, the, the heartbreak of that moment will happen again. Like that little girl is not an old lady wandering around here somewhere. And so we could ask, well, he raised one person physically from the dead or a couple people physically from the dead way back then. What What's the impact of that for us today? Uh, and I think there's two primary things going on here. The first is that, uh, especially in this feeding miracle, uh, is that he's meeting their need right then. Uh, these are people who are hungry, they've experienced hunger, and they've neglected to go get food for themselves in order to hear him teach. It reminds me of Mary and Martha where where one of the sisters is told, well, I'm not going to, by Jesus is told, I'm not going to reprimand your other sister for not helping you. She has chosen the better portion. She's chosen rather than to prepare the house to hear me teach. Uh, And so I think one of the things we can take away from that is that there are these people who've who've neglected eating, and Jesus is meeting their daily need. Uh, And it might seem like a small thing to provide bread, but that's huge in the ancient world. Uh, And then the other thing is that it's directing us towards what god ultimately wants and so one of the points i made in my sermon was connecting the idea that he's feeding them just right then to the concept that they would need to come back again and again to eat just like the israelites when god rains heaven from bread they need to go out each day and collect food and so there he's he's meeting their needs but he's also calling them into daily and consistent relationship with and then uh, the the second question, specifically for me, uh, I think there's a couple of things that stand out. Just to pick one, uh, going back to that concept of gratitude, um, and and as well uh, to borrow something from John Stop. John Stop writing about this passage refers to the flexibility, grace, noting that when Jesus first, uh, when Jesus's goal when the disciples got in the boat was not to feed five thousand people. It's actually clear that his goal was to take the disciples away and kind of do this like ministry retreat with them, uh, and yet Jesus's flexibility and graciousness and mercy is what enables this miracle to be done. And I think uh, so. The flexibility of grace is something that that I struggle with, have, wanting to have a schedule and have guardrails so that I know what's going on. Uh, and then just going back to that point I made before about seeing the things that are in my life every day and realizing that those are blessings. Uh, And being grateful for them, rather than just, you know, now that they're here and they're in my life, it's easy for take to take them for granted.
0: That's great. Well, uh, thanks for your labor in the text this week. Um, Next week we're going to be tackling Jesus walking on water, and so we'll be back here next Wednesday, uh, walking through that text and walking through uh, the things that I I left on the cutting room floor from the sermon. Um, We are a people of the book. Um, That is true abundantly about God's Word, and so um, being a people of the book, uh, we want to sit under uh, the preached Word on Sundays. We want to continue to chew on that Word and that truth throughout the week, and so we hope that this podcast is helpful in um, accomplishing that and in keeping the Word before us during the week. And So we encourage you. Uh, to be here on Sunday, to listen to the sermons, but also to uh, tune in for this podcast. And with that, um, we are are done for the day and we will be seeing you guys next week. Have a, a great rest of the week.